Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. Craig Carradine is an extraordinary man and a role model to many, including myself. Raised amidst the violence within the Cabrini Green Housing Project in Chicago, his path was set at a young age to make a difference. Born and raised uh, in Chicago in the Cabrini Green uh, Housing uh, Project area. And um, as a young kid, uh, I was introduced to uh, a lot of violence. Um, come from a large family. My parents were together. They had uh, three older brothers and three sisters. Um, and during that time, um, it was uh, it was tough. Like I said, I, I, w- I witnessed my first murder at the age of ten. And as a kid, you know, just while looking out the window, I, I was always fascinated with like grown men getting up early in the morning just to be drinking on the corner. Sometimes they shoot dice. Uh, I've seen pit bull fighting, and uh, there was a tavern right next to our to the building. And one day in the summertime, I was looking inside the tavern, just being nosy, seeing men just drinking. And I don't know why that fascinated me, but it was just part of my environment. And as I was looking, these two guys in masks uh, with masks over their face. One had a sawed-off shotgun, and one had a, a regular firearm. Go rushing into the tavern. And the only thing I remember is that the owner of the tavern was standing behind the bar. Everybody had their hands up. And the next thing you know it, this guy with the shotgun just blew his face off. And they ran out, and I just stood there just watching. They ran down the street, and within two weeks, one of the guys who pulled the trigger came up to me and says, Hey, I know you were out there, and um, if you ever say anything, and I didn't know who he was. He says, I will kill you, your father. I know everybody in your family. And I never told a word at all. Never said anything. Um, and with that being said, you know, my life went on and on and on to saying like a lot of violence, a lot of gang intimidations. And luckily for me, I had three older brothers that paved the way for me. Uh, and uh, I played sports. Um, I occupied my time playing sports and playing over in the rec center. But throughout, I mean, it was always a lot of gang intimidation, someone getting shot from, like, car racing to uh, everything, you name it. And uh, I thank God that I had both parents. My father used to literally sit out in front of the building with a <laughs> with a uh, pistol in his pocket just to make sure that we got home safe from school. That always inspired me to try to uh, do something as I got older as far as, like, trying to... Uh, be involved with with public service, and and, and that, that's what gave my interest towards law enforcement. My brother, uh, my oldest brother, was strung out on 
on crack cocaine. And um, as a young kid, I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on with him coming home late. Only thing I noticed that he was like sometimes out of his mind. And uh, my mom was victimized when I was uh, a young kid while riding the uh, Chicago Transit Authority train. And uh, things like that uh, encouraged me to uh, to try to go out and get every bad guy, every bad guy who was responsible for not only victimizing my mom, but putting this poison into my brother's body. And uh, that inspired me to, uh, to, to get involved with law enforcement, just trying to to do my part as far as like getting a lot of uh, evil and violent people off the streets. Craig's career in law enforcement started like many others, slowly gaining comfort and confidence. I graduated from Lewis University, um, and right after college, Jay, I, you know, I was just trying to find my niche as far as like applying for jobs, and I, I didn't get them. So I went to uh, the Air Force um, um, Reserves. So I went away, did some basic training. I had to just reestablish myself, got in great shape, came back, and then I started applying for jobs. And uh, I started off working at the Cook County Assessor's Office, dealing with uh, taxpayers and properties and things of that nature. And right after that, I landed a job as a juvenile probation officer in Chicago. And uh, that was more in my niche because in college I, I majored in uh, criminal justice. Uh, I had a, a large caseload. I worked the west side of Chicago, and I dealt with juveniles who who who, uh, who um, had cases such as unlawful use of a weapon, to aggravated assault, to uh, 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 raping, to theft, stolen stolen property, uh, etc. And during the time, uh, there was a guy who was with ATF, and we kept in touch, and I knew that during that time they were doing some hiring. That's when I applied for for ATF. But that was sort of like my stepping stone with working at the Cook County Assessor's Office, United States Air Force, and um, Juvenile Court. Oh, uh, I forgot also that I applied for the Chicago Police Department, and I passed the exam, and I, I got called in to go to the academy. But prior to going in, um, that's when ATF called me. Yes, I was assigned to Merrillville. Uh, which is located in the, uh, the state of uh, Indiana, but it was still under the Chicago Field Division. And, and basically, we covered uh, uh, probably, uh, I would say, eight to ten counties in the state of Indiana. And from time to time, if there was something going on major in Chicago, like farms trafficking, we would help out some of the groups uh, in Chicago. But uh, Merrillville Field Office was responsible for everything from arson cases to uh, explosive cases to firearms trafficking to to gang cases, uh, et cetera. We, we did it all in one nutshell. We had a, approximately maybe 12 uh, ATF agents in the office along with uh, probably 12 uh, state and local task force officers from Lake County to to um, to uh, Gary to Lafayette. I mean, we had a lot of different uh, uh, local uh, police officers who were task force officers. So we had a great group, group back then. I mean, we did a lot of good things. And basically what we did, we targeted a lot of uh, violent offenders uh, in, the, in the city of, of Gary. And uh, for those who are listening, um, Gary, Indiana is approximately maybe less than uh, I would say 25, maybe 20 miles away from uh, the, the Illinois 
Illinois border, like leading to Chicago. In February 1996, Craig was investigating violent gang members in Gary, Indiana. Cedric Triggs and, and uh, Harold uh, Ballard were uh, known members of uh, the gang called the Vice Lords. And the Vice Lords um, um, were founded in uh, Chicago, but they merged out into uh, the city of uh, Gary, Indiana. Um, Cedric Triggs uh, had a uh, violent uh, criminal history. And uh, when I first received a phone call in the office, when I got the information about him, I did a criminal background check and found out that he was responsible for shooting a rival gang member of the Gangster Disciples in the face. Um, this a rivalry conflict that they were having. The, uh, the victim survived. And then also, when I started uh, meeting him in undercover capacity, he had a uh, pending state charge of um, unlawful use of a weapon where he uh, shot someone in the buttocks area. Um, it was also known that he was shot seven times previously uh, and survived. Um, and one day I had his photo in my office and a task force member from the Gary uh, Police Department identified him on my wall and he says, hey, this guy is a suspect and he's known to be uh, involved with several shootings. Um, Harold Bar Ballard, um, he had a uh, background too a lot in uh, armed robberies and even as even as to date uh, he had uh, he's he's uh, he's on the I guess top 10 list in uh, the city of Gary uh, Indiana because uh, he's no longer uh, incarcerated but he's still uh, doing this, this same old thing of doing like a lot of uh, evil things it all started when I was just in the office by myself and uh, um, I believe I was a duty agent at the time, and the duty agent is the person who covers the phone while everybody else is out on the streets uh, doing their thing. So I answered the phone, and uh, someone uh, told me that um, there was a guy in, a, in, in their community selling guns, and I asked the person, how do you know this? And they told me that this individual shot their brother in the face, and he survived. And I says, well, can you give me his inf information? And she gave me his name, Cedric Triggs, and... I, I did all the criminal history, and I gathered a lot of reports, got a photograph, and I said, I'll call you back in a couple of days. And, and uh, Jay, you know how it goes. Sometimes when you're this eager agent, you want to get out there and and, um, and be a ball buster. Um, I went up and down uh, the hallway and said, hey, will any, is anybody willing to go out with me? I, I need to hook up with someone to identify this guy, and no one said no. So what I did, I, I, you know, I took the risk, which was dumb, um, and I went out to uh, that area, and I met up with this person, and they identified this, this guy. And I said, hey, can you take me by his house? And it was like walking distance. I went by his house, and lo and behold, which is a big no-no, again, <laughs> uh, he came out. And that very day, man, he, he, was, he was willing to sell me some guns. And I told him, you know, give me a couple, give me a couple weeks, and uh, I'll get back with you. And then I left. Thank God nothing happened. And I uh, started my paperwork. Um, and got the ball rolling, and I remember contacting him, a recorded phone conversation, and he says that he had some guns, and he also confessed. He said, hey, man, you know, I got a case that I'm working on. You know, I need to pay, pay some money to my attorney. 
And that was the case that I was referring to when he shot someone in the buttocks. So I started buying guns from him immediately. Um, gathered up my cover team, went right in the area where he lived in Gary, Indiana. And how it would work, I would drive up, and he would be in another car by himself. And he would uh, immediately get out, pop the trunk, and as a safety thing, I immediately took control of those guns as I was looking at them and uh, making sure that they were uh, unloaded. And if they were loaded, I would make sure that, you know, I would be able to control that situation just in case, in case if he tried anything. So over a course of maybe a couple of weeks, uh, you know, I started calling him, ordered up more guns. And as I was talking to him over the phone, he was telling me how he was getting involved with shootouts in the neighborhood and... Uh, one thing in Chicago, you know, you got the, the vice lords, you got the uh, the gangster disciples, you got the black disciples. So it was constantly gang wars. And his criminal history proved that, you know, he's been involved with a lot of shootings. And like I said, he was shot five previous times and he survived. And you know how you can tell someone who has a evil presence? And every time that I met with him, his body language, his... his um, his gesturings, his aggressiveness was almost like a, the best way I can describe it is like a wild dog, like a pit bull who's just, just taught to train just to be uh, someone just to, to attack and kill. And that's the type of aura that I sense from him. And back then I was like this young, dumb, and just like naive to a sense. But one thing that I, that I did have in my favor is that I've, I've uh, played sports over my career, and I was always visualizing the what-if, and the what-if factor is like, if, if, he, if he did this, I would counterattack and do this. If uh, somebody else comes, I would, like, gather my position and be able to focus on the real threat. Um, so a lot of things that, that helped me out during that time. And then also, more importantly, is to always watch the hands, take control of those guns. So as we we started, uh, as I started buying more guns, I noticed he was getting a lot, like a lot more shootouts. And one day when I was in my office typing up my report, the Gary police officer like saw his picture, and that's when he says, "Hey, this guy is wanted in a uh, suspected homicide in a liquor store where they went inside of a liquor store and he, they tied up the owner and shot him in the back of the head." And during that time, I guess I was just sort of like immune to just. Focusing on the job, I'm listening to the violence, but in, in the back of my mind, and I'm no hero, but this all goes back to my childhood, like dealing with seeing a lot of violence, and I was immune to my environment. I've seen guns pulled out. I've seen, like, dead bodies, like, right in front of me. Um, I was just immune just to hearing stuff like that. So it really didn't register until uh, further down the line. And I remember one time when I met with Cedric to buy some more guns, that's when he came with another guy. I believe his last name was Walker. He was a convicted felon. And um, I could tell that things were getting sort of, like, uh, out of control a little bit. I mean, this guy was, like, really aggressive, and he really needed the money. And he was, like, almost, like, pounding his fist, like, hey, man, if you need, if you need, if you need more guns, man, you got to order more guns, man which means that he wanted more money for whatever purpose it was during that time. Um, so with that being said, every time that I met with him, I was by myself. 
And my intuition was telling me, you know, throughout the course of my um, dealing with him, from phone calls to meeting with him, his aggressive behavior, to the shootouts, that I need to take someone else. And these things registered to me in my mind as, as being called red flags, that you have to pay attention to certain things like that. So every time that I met with him, it was in his neighborhood uh, near his home. And I wanted to take more control of what was going on. Doing a undercover deal um, in February of uh, 1996, um, I had uh, contacted Triggs, and I, I wanted to buy at least a half ounce of uh, crack cocaine along with five Glocks. Uh, that he said that he had in his possession. And during that time, I decided to bring along a Gary, Indiana police officer. His, his name was Her Harold Coleman. And um, I was driving a 1987 Cutlass Oldsmobile two-door. And in speaking with Triggs, we controlled the, 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 uh, the operation to meet at a McDonald's parking lot, which is probably like maybe six blocks away from his home. And it was uh, near um, a hospital, which was right across the street, Methodist Hospital on 5th and Grant Street. And in the back of my mind, I'm saying, like, okay, although this guy's violent, and I know it's his history, we're going to try to do this around maybe 12 noon, maybe 1 o'clock. It's going to be people out there going to McDonald's. And it just so happened that day that a lot of kids were going back and forth to McDonald's because there was a nearby uh, school in the area. So I felt pretty comfortable. We, I had my cover team out there. We had probably close to 15 people out there. We also had it on video. And one thing that I wanted to make known is that um, when you're doing an undercover operation, which I didn't know at the time, I guess I didn't know, but I'm, I'm always playing a nice guy role. And sometimes, you know, I fought myself for that. But the tactical operation officer controlled where the car was to be set up at. Um, rather than rather than having me uh, being being in control of having the car position where I wanted, he wanted me to back it in, uh, move it to the left, move it to the right, and my main job is to control, like I said, and focus in on on any potential threats. Well, that day when everybody was in position, Cedric had agreed to bring uh, the uh, the evidence towards uh, McDonald's in the parking lot. And during the time, me and my partner were talking in the car, and we were saying, I said, hey, well, when he comes, I want to be able to, uh, I want to get out the car, I'm going to pop the trunk. But he's a paranoid individual, so if he doesn't want to, you know, do the exchange for the deal on the outside, you know, have let's let him get on the inside, which, which means that you, I want you to sit in the back seat and let him sit on the passenger side. That way, if there is any, any type of threat, you know, we both can focus in on that threat. Craig met undercover with suspect Cedric Triggs in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant to continue his negotiation for the purchase of guns and drugs. I'm going like a motherfucker too. Check this out, I ain't going by your crib, man. See motherfuckers shooting around and shit, you know what I'm saying? I don't know why you shoot by my crib, man. I'm going to do it like this. I'm going to do it some other time, A.G., because... That's it, man. You told me he's going to be right here, man. I expect you to come on through with your business, man. Man, we can do the thing, man, but you want the business done right, shit. We gotta go to my crib. That way you ain't gonna no. make a look at the shit. I got the shit. Right? I, ain't, I ain't going that way, Trump. Yeah, I got, 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 I got,
understanding of who he was dealing with and aware of the red flag warning signs, Craig would soon be caught in the middle of a drug rip ambush, the gun battle and hand-to-hand combat caught on audio and videotape. He didn't want to walk up there with all that stuff, so he's going to go back to his house. He lives 430 McKinley. Everybody stay in place and just keep an eyeball on him. And we're going to wait. He's going to come back with a half ounce along with one of the Glocks. But he's just so paranoid since he's been involved with shooters and stuff that he don't want to take a chance of walking with that stuff up here. So he's going to get it. And we're going to give him a certain amount of time. We'll give him like 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, one in 
Okay, well, hold on. Let me, let me take care of this first, then we can take care of that. Alright, take it out for you feel comfortable, okay? Yeah, let me see you got shit on in the mouth. Yeah, cut that shit, cut shit out. Yeah. And keep that motherfucker clip out too, man. face. 
And I said, oh, shit. And I leaned forward, my head going towards the steering wheel. And he shoots off around and misses me and shoots, shoots my partner in the back seat. Ballard runs from the outside. He runs. And the only thing that I heard was the slide going forward on the passenger side. And I immediately reached in my waistband and I pulled out and I leaned my back towards the driver's side opening door and started just shooting. In the meantime, my partner in the back seat, who had a uh, registered um, machine gun, uh, started shooting back and forth. And the only thing in my mind, everything started slowing down. I'm saying to myself, oh, God, you know, please help me. You know, I, you know, I don't want to die like this. And I'm just fighting just the will to survive. And over 20 rounds of, of a guns of, uh, of gunfire inside the vehicle uh, was going off from the roof to the doors to bullets going back and forth. And my body uh, built up so much adrenaline that it I was protected because everything was in slow motion. The, the uh, gunfire sounds like popcorn in a, in a microwave. And during this time, um, which I later found out, the game plan was for Harold Barrett to come up to the car and execute me while Cedric Triggs turned around and shoot my partner. So they were exchanging gunfire, Cedric Triggs and my partner, um, uh, Coleman, uh, while I was just shooting on uh, towards Triggs' direction. There was so much gunfire on the passenger side where Triggs was sitting there, he couldn't exit out because the door was jammed. So this guy's been shot five times before, and just like me and my partner had the will to survive, he's used to being in a situation like that too. He had in his mind that the only exit that I can get out of here is an open window, window but I got to go past this guy. So as he, as he jumped, he jumps towards me, goes across my lap, I put my gun to the back of his head, and the, and the, and the, the gun uh, was jammed. It, it wouldn't, I guess it was, it went out of ram or jammed. And I, I, I remember trying to squeeze the trigger, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't, um, I couldn't, um, I couldn't, um, execute. So in my mind, I, I was out of bullets. So the next thing I did, I just took it and I just started trying to beat, beat the fuck out of him. But he still got out the car. And in my mind, when I, when I heard the first shot, or when my partner got shot, I thought maybe he was dead. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to go down like this. I decided just to, to give chase. I jumped out of the, the window of the car. I don't know how I got out. But I gave chase. And uh, during the time, the, the cover team reacted where um, one of the guys on the task force had a pistol grip shotgun, shot uh, Triggs in the back of the head, scathed him. Triggs kept running. And next thing you know, it, tunnel vision kicked in with me. Um, I started hearing myself breathing. I'm running down the street. I'm crossing the street, and I'm just hearing myself breathing real hard, and it just got black. And within less than 30 seconds, I was in the alley uh, against the fence, and Triggs was in handcuffs uh, laying right next to me. And his head was uh, covered with blood from um, from being shot, first of all, and then I think from the time where I was uh, beating him heavily across the head. Um, he was apprehended, and... Um, Ballard, the guy who um, walked up to my car, he was apprehended. And they both were convicted for uh, attempted murder 
armed robbery, and they both were uh, sentenced to 35 years. Uh, there were guys at the house uh, that I uh, bought guns off of. One was a convicted felon. He was convicted for five years. Another guy was convicted of three years who was a participant, part of the conspiracy. Craig took control of the post-shooting mental and emotional side effects he was experiencing after having had his life flash before his eyes. That, that, that took a lot out of me um, afterwards because uh, I didn't know, I realized that the, at the early age in Chicago, I was dealing with post-traumatic stress. But I didn't realize what it was. I just thought that that was just natural. But as my career went on after that shooting, I made my mind up. I said, hey, you know what? If I don't get back out there, I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to be afraid that I, that I won't be able to achieve certain things that I want to do throughout my career. So I took, uh, took it real slow. I started doing more cases and um, built my, my confidence back up. I always had the fear factor because being afraid to me is nothing but keeping yourself alert and being aware of your surroundings, not being cocky or confident, but just to have that fear of knowing that Craig Carradine can control what he wants to do on the operation, but I've had no idea what the bad guy is going to do. So I want to always try to anticipate of having that fear just in case I need to defend myself. Um, so as, as time went on, I started working more cases. And I've, throughout the rest of my career, I, I think I did my last UC case was like 2017. I mean, it's 15. And I've worked... I've target. I've uh, dealt with a lot of violent offenders, and since that time, you know, the PTS really jumped out at me towards the tail end of my career. It, and um, um, I'm not feeling sorry for myself, but I've had like uh, meetings with uh, sessions with therapists and everything, and it appears to not work. And the reason why, because I've, I've always taken control of those uh, those uh, meetings and. Um, the, the life, the livelihood that I live now, I'm, I'm very thankful, I'm very happy, but it's just like, uh, I think for the rest of my life until I really, really um, help solve some of my problems that I'm going to always be looking over my shoulder. Uh, the story is that with Cedric Triggs, I've, I've developed a great relationship with having a, uh, uh, a great relationship with my God and that I, I forgive him. And right now he's a rapper, believe it or not. And you know, um, what he did was wrong. It was evil. It was it was uh, it was unwarranted. But I, I forgive him, and that's just part of my belief. So I, I, I'm hoping that he's changed his life around. I know he's a rapper now, but I just hope that he's not back into that lifestyle again. Craig's journey to God was elevated when he learned to embrace thankfulness. As a as a, as a young child, I, I was always. Um, I was always, to me, I was always, and don't take, hope the, the listeners don't take this wrong, I was always forced to go to church. And what I mean by that, I had great parents, I was born and raised Catholic, and I was like forced to go to church. So I would go to church and I was just like, just sit there, just listening. Sometimes I, I would daydream from kneeling to getting up, and then eventually I became an altar boy, and my, my relationship with God during that time was a much better as, as a little boy and started paying attention to the Bible, some of the stories in the Bible. And as I've 
gotten older, like career-wise out of college, my relationship still wasn't as close to God, but I believed in God and um, just practiced this praying. But I wasn't as thankful as I am today, if that makes sense. Um, uh, prior to ATF, I, you know, I was almost in two serious car accidents. And rather than me being thankful and thanking God for, you know, uh, keeping me alive, I just thought that that was just, uh, I was just a lucky individual that, that day. I thought I was lucky by just driving skillfully and everything. And uh, more and more incidents uh, came about. And um, I don't know if I told you this, but you're probably aware that I'm a survivor of prostate cancer. So I was diagnosed like back in 2008. And I've been cancer-free since that time. And throughout that time, uh, Jay, when I was like at my vulnerable, weakest uh, moment, physically and mentally, that's when I start re reconnecting with God in the faith and giving him uh, thanks and praise and being thankful to, uh, to everything that he's provided for me throughout my life, from, from having a great uh, family, having great parents, to be alive, to be able to have a job, to be able to pay bills, to be able to reach back and help out others, to have had great friends, to keep me from harm throughout my, my, my career in law enforcement, to, um, to, to help me against fighting demons at night and, you know, while I'm sleeping. Um, it's just like my relationship with God is so awesome now that I truly believe that, with, that there's no other explanation. This is Craig Carradine speaking. There's no other explanation that there is a God as far as the existence and he's done a lot of marvelous things for me and he's put a lot of good people in my life to um to share to share the word like many of us craig looks at his life with both achievement and regret the greatest regret that i have and this is just my beliefs um i think i had prostate for a reason through god is when i was younger probably at the age of maybe one time, age uh, 18, 19, and 22, I've had three abortions. And I'm not proud of myself about that. I've asked, I've asked God for my forgiveness. And um, I don't have any kids. And to me, to not uh, be able to have, like, uh, um, someone someone like a legacy or something like you know like you have your kids and you know, your son that um and i know i was i wasn't a jay dobbins but I, I think i was pretty good on the basketball court for me to, to at least try to initiate something like that to having a son that's one of my biggest uh downfalls and uh, a lot of times i do beat myself over the head that you know what were you thinking of and you know these ladies got pregnant by me we they had we had an abortion and I was wrong. I asked God for my forgiveness, and I know God has forgiven me. So that's one of the biggest regrets that I ever had um, in my life. And I guess one of the rewards that I've that I've um, have experienced is the fact that I've had um, not only throughout my career, you know, I've I've worked a lot of cases and stuff, and uh, helped put a lot of through teamwork, helped put a lot of bad guys behind bars. But one of the greatest rewards that I've had is that through a divine intervention 
on my way to Chicago while working a surge when the height of the crime was, was, was up there. I was on a plane, and it was pretty crowded. And as I was walking towards my seat, this big guy was sitting, like, in, in, uh, in, in the middle seat, a lady by the window, and that was the only available seat. And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm saying, I do, I do not want to sit next to this guy. Well, I sat down next to him, and then after maybe 30 minutes riding on the plane back to Chicago, he started talking to me, and I said, I don't want to be bothered with this guy. And I found out that he was um, one of the archdiocese of the boys' and girls' mercy homes in Chicago. And we formulated a great relationship. And with that being said, they do a lot of charitable foundations. They even have, like, uh, in-house housing for for kids. And if you go there, you're being tutored. Teachers are there. And you can get a a full scholarship once you complete the course of four years of academic studies. And uh, we incorporated HCF with the Boys and Girls Mercy Home. So that was one of the biggest rewards that I've ever uh, gotten um, through through having a relationship like that. That was nothing but divine intervention to me. And uh, that's one of my goals, to to try to get back to Chicago, to reconnect, to see if I can go back and just help out with the Boys and Mercy Home, whatever capacity that, that I can do. Craig is thankful for his brothers and sisters in ATF's undercover program and for the friendships and partnerships he gained over the years. For my ATF family, and uh, uh, especially my ATF family, when I retired, I was kind of real quiet and uh, introverted, and I kept to myself, and I really didn't let anybody know um, that I was retiring. I, I, I retired at the age of 50, 55. And uh, I, I guess I was out of gas, but I just wanted to say that over my years, I've met a lot of good uh, good people uh, with ATF, and um, especially those who are uh, a part of the undercover uh, world, work workforce. And uh, there was a lot of good, talented agents out there who've done undercover. Uh, no offense to those who are great, solid criminal investigators, but for the undercover crew, as far as the men and the women, I just want to say that, you know, I have a lot of respect for you guys and women who have done it and who are still out there doing it. And, and uh, those who have retired that who, uh, who made a difference in society to put people behind bars and uh, made a lot of sac- sacrifices away from your family. And, you know, all those things that we did weren't perfect, but we got the job done the way that, that it's supposed to be done. And and uh, then also throughout our careers, we've made uh, a lot of great connections and relationships with the state and local police department and other federal agencies. So I, I just wanted to say, uh, uh, just give you a salute. Craig's life has been committed to one of public service. His message to us reflects that. I would say to, um, if you don't have a relationship with God, to always try to think of morality when it comes to doing wrong and right things. And sometimes you have to think about the uh, the less fortunate, uh, the victims out here. Um, so anything that you can do, and I'm not saying every day when you wake up, but anything that you can do to reach back to help someone who's in need, whether it may be uh, a lady at the cash register with 
three kids and she's having a hard time paying for her groceries or whether it may be a, a, a elderly lady who's walking across the streets with walking with bags. Maybe it may be an elderly lady who lives in your community who lives alone, who's not computer savvy, that doesn't know how to uh, order um, uh, service from stores to, to drop off food. Anything that you can do do to help out the common man, just do it. Do it. And, uh, you know, don't expect anything in return. But things like that can be contagious. And um, I just think, I, I just said if, if everybody would try to concentrate on having a, a kind and loving and healthy heart, I know family comes first, but if you can help out those who are in need, um, just, just do it. Just do it out of the kindness of, of, of your heart. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.